And while they're leaving, if you'll turn to James, uh, James chapter 1, and it says on your handout, James chapter 1, 1 through 4, I tricked you, we're doing James chapter 1, verse 2. At this rate, uh, we're going to have about 108 sermons, there's 108 verses in James. We're on verse 2, and we've done 3, this will be our third one, so we are moving at breakneck speed, so please forgive us if you're missing things, if you're, if you're not catching the drift of what James is doing here. I promise you... We will move faster eventually. I keep promising that and I renege on it, so I guess that makes me a liar. But um, anyway, forgive me for that. But this is good, and, and we, need to get, we need to get James 2, verse, chapter 1, verse 2 down, and really 3 and 4, and we'll, we'll, start, we'll start moving along here. But as, 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 as we dig in, we've got to get chapter 2 down. James sets the book really for the, the, the path or really the setting for the whole book. And last week we, we looked at laying down our credentials. We talked about laying down our credentials at the cross. James calls himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about seeing ourselves as servants, that, that the only thing that we brought to the cross was our sin, that God did everything for us to be saved. And, and, and we looked at, that's what James is saying there with the word bondservant. Paul called himself a bondservant. You see the same word used for, for David and for Moses and Abraham and, uh, and the great men and women of God were servants. And, and James in one verse makes it clear to his believing audience that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That, that's the reason you see of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you broke those verses down into the original, what James is saying is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the, the promised one that the Old Testament saints looked forward to. He is the promised one that God promised that He would send. It's Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of, of all the promises as 2 Corinthians 1.20 declares, For as many as are the promises of God in Him, in Christ, they are yes. And here, here's why James does this, and this is why it's very important that we get these initial verses down, that we understand them, that, that, that really that we're in agreement on what they say. We, we must remember who Christ is and what He has done first. We, we must, must get that nailed down about what Christ has done, because everything else that we see here in James is built upon what Christ has done first. We are responders. God has shown sacrificial mercy in, at, in putting His Son on a cross, crucifying Him, burying Him, resurrecting Him three days later. Sacrificial mercy. What, what God has done always precedes what He commands us to do. God, Paul, James is, is making sure that he understands what, what we're going to see. Again, there's 108 verses in James. 59 of them are commands. If we don't, if we don't get it right that we're responders, we're going to walk out of here and we're going to think we're earning something, that we're meriting something, that we've got to pull up our own boot, bootstraps and get it done. No, we're responders. 59 out of 108 verses, commands. And, and yet the point of what James is saying is we are responders of grace, not initiators of grace. We don't buy, we don't warrant, we don't merit God's grace or mercy through our actions. Please hear that. That's why James 
painstakingly gives all these titles and gives this introduction. We're not meriting or warranting or deserving of God's grace. We have received sacrificial mercy through grace. We are to give sacrificial mercy because of that grace. We as Christians are giving what we have first received. We'll look as we study James. Almost everything that we see in James, you can trace back to Matthew five, or Matthew chapter five through seven, with the with the Sermon on the Mount. Almost everything that we see here can be traced back there, and you see the same principle taught by our Savior. God's love for us is based upon Christ's work, not ours. We we through faith we place ourselves in Christ. Through faith we become His children. We become forgiven of our sin. We're declared righteous. We're reconciled. We're redeemed. All of that is by grace. Every bit of it by grace. And what we do, how we live, how we respond to that is an overflow of the, again, of the sacrificial mercy that we first received from God. It's an overflow. We're full. We've been filled up with everything that God has given us, and we're to give that out. We're responders. We're to be conduits of God's sacrificial mercy, not, not cul-de-sacs where it ends with us. And, and what James is saying is based upon all of that, our standing before Christ is not of ourselves. It's not of ourselves. And, and we've got to understand that because James immediately jumps into the deep end of the pool. He, he immediately goes into trials. Immediately. You'd think maybe he'd just kind of ease in. and No, no, he jumps right into the deep end, trials. And if we're honest, this, this is an issue that Christians throughout history, many of us sitting in here, when I, I, all week as I was preparing this, names again are just flowing through my mind. As I talk about trials, I, I, I understand to a great degree much of what you're going through in here. And I, and I don't preach this lightly, I, I don't, but I don't preach it apologizing for it. It's what, it's what, it's what God says. Why do bad things happen to God's people? If we're honest, we've all struggled with that. We've all asked the why question. Why? Why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? And, and if we're honest, we grapple with that. We struggle with those why questions. If we're honest, much of what we see in life and what we see going on, either in us or our friends, our family, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. It doesn't add up. And, and yet trials are a very natural starting point when we understand the context, and, and we'll explain that. Because of that, because of where these people were, because of, of who he's writing to, trials were a very, very real part of their life. And, and again, look at our Savior. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. No doubt, James, that word joy, same word in Hebrews 12 too, when Jesus Christ faced the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Joy. Again, we're responders. We're not doing anything, not commanded to do anything that our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, didn't first do. Every single one of us who live in this world, every single one of us are either going into a trial or in a trial or coming out of a trial. It's just part of life. Trials. We, we are fallen creatures. 
We live in a fallen world. We live, we're sinful people. We live among sinful people. Whether you believe it or not, you're married. If you're here, you're married. You're married to a sinful person. That, I know that's not hard to believe. We all know our other people. We know our spouse's sin real well. That, that's a recipe for disaster. Fallen people living in a fallen world, living amongst fallen people. Guess what? We're going to hurt each other, and trials will come. Job in chapter 5, verse 7, listen to what Job said. Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job is saying, at man's sinful fallen nature, you know what you produce? Friction, and friction produces sparks. And we have trials. The natural consequence of man's sinfulness is trouble. In Job 14.1, he said, Man that is born of woman, I'm a woman, I'm assuming that's everybody, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. A few days and full of trouble. Aren't you blessed that you drug your family here to hear this this morning? I know you're, it's very encouraging. The reality is, is the trials that we're going to speak about, if you're like my family, now the good news is God and His grace, I don't ride to church with my family anymore, so He's pretty much made us... Um, void of having this conflict. Some of you probably experienced the trial just getting your family to church. Some of you probably on the way are going to spend the whole way home repenting and working out that which occurred to get your family here. That's the, you, trials are real. E- even, this is, even, even as I say this, Bradley and I, are dry, he likes to ride in with me in the morning and we're cutting through Oakstead and there was something in the road and I drove by and I thought, what was that? And I thought, that, that looked like a possum in the middle, of, standing on the road there. And, it, and I thought, I, so I, I foolishly, I, I see that now, I backed up. There was a, a mother possum on the side of the road, and the baby possum was hanging on his back. Something had happened to the mama possum, and let's just say she wasn't going nowhere. She was not dead. And of course, my son, well, you got to call somebody. I'm like, Riley, it's a possum. No, but there's a baby on its back, and that's a baby possum. So the whole way home, Bradley is just wearing me out about, you've got to call somebody. Finally, I called Animal Control. They put me in touch with somebody. About five people later, I left a message. So I'm not, don't tell Bradley, I'm not driving back that way on the way out after church. I'm just going to make up a story that, that, that little, I'm going to assume the best that the person I left a message with came and got that possum. I'm thinking, why did I back up? You're probably thinking, why did I back up? But trials, I mean, Bradley, Brad, I thought it was cool because it's a mom and a baby possum. Then I realized, yeah, that's not cool anymore. What happened? He's crying. He's upset. I'm trying to be a good dad, but yet at the same time, it's a possum, son. It's a possum. That's what they do. So, but anyway, trials. The whole, all, the whole way home, I mean, the whole way in here, I'm thinking, peaceful, we'll put on um, Daniel Cruz, listen to how great thou art, and there's a possum laying in the middle of the road that I got to deal with the rest of the trip. But trials, trials. We, it, we will face trials. And, and what I hope to, to, to build in us and to help us with in the coming weeks is for us to have a proper attitude and a proper theology regarding trials. That we will discern our trials through the character of God, that we will walk through our trials with God, that we will seek the wisdom of God to, to ask Him what is He doing in the midst of the trials. We, we want to discern our trials through the character of God. We, want, we don't want to discern the character of God through our trials. And there's a big difference. We approach our trials with who we know God to be. We don't look at our trials and then try to figure out who God is. When, why do we go through trials? How do we go through trials? 
James provides answers. And I, I want us to be a people, I want us to be a church that walks through trials knowing what James has to say here. That we'll walk through them confidently. That we'll walk through them with the right attitude. That we'll walk each other through them with the right attitude. And you'll see on your handout as we jump into verse 2, main point, just one main point today. I'll summarize it with some action points at the end, but here's the main point I want us to walk away with today regarding trials. God's sovereignty allows us to maintain an attitude of joy even in the midst of trials. God's sovereignty allows us, it empowers us to maintain an attitude of joy even in the midst of trials. That's what James says, consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, listen, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But before we, before we start trying to figure out what James is saying, we need to know the context. We, we need to know the audience to who James is writing. We need to know what they were going through. We need to know what they were doing. All the letters you'll see here, all the letters in the Bible, they're written by an author, they're written to an audience, and they're dealing with specific things. They're, they're addressing specific issues. You look at 1 Corinthians that we studied, Paul is addressing some specific questions that the Corinthians had written. Here in James, Paul is, is writing to, he says there, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. James tells us he is writing primarily to Jewish believers. He's writing to believers. That's key. Don't, don't, don't jump in these books and start trying to jump around. People do it with Hebrews. People do it with all these books. Start jumping around. He's writing to believers. Don't try to make these verses watered down. Well, that's a non-believer. That's a believer. He's writing to believers. Jewish believers. They have been dispersed. They've been scattered from their home in Jerusalem. You read in Acts 2, 9-11, it talks about all the places that the Jews, all the distant places that the Jews had come back from to observe the Feast, the feast of Pentecost. They were already scattered. They're scattered abroad. They're, they're not in their homes. They're not together. They're, they're all over the place. When we come to Acts 8, verse 1, the stoning of Stephen, you see that they're dispersed as well. It says they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They were all scattered. You're, we're talking about Jewish believers here who have been scattered. Th think about that. Try, try to put your shoe, yourself in their shoes for a moment. Jewish believer who probably would have been raised under a set of rules and thinking and a theology all their lives, converted to Christ, by grace, they've received Christ. They have recognized Him as the Messiah. They've opened, their eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel. And now they've been scattered, flung, just flung about to all these faraway places. Try to put yourself in their shoes. Think about the questions that these new believers would need answered. Think about the questions that these Jews would be looking at their heritage and their history and, and who they are. James is writing, this is one of the earliest one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Many scholars believe this is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. This is a very transitional time. Lots going on. You know, these Jewish believers would have, would have had a theology based on the Old Testament that, that said, hey, God's people, they would have gone to Deuteronomy 28 through 31 that we looked at and said, hey, if I do this, 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 and this, I'm blessed. And non-believers, the, the 
non-believers do this, 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 and God curses them. What's going on? Why am I suffering? We're God's people. Why are we suffering? I'm God's people. Why am I going through this? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the new covenant. I'm, I'm no longer under the Mosaic law. I'm under grace. How do I look at this? How do I interpret this? How are, they to, how are they to relate their faith in Jesus Christ to their Jewish heritage? These are all questions that James is addressing and trying to... You, I hope you see where context is king. You've got to understand the context. And this is where James says the attitude comes into play. How will they, how will we face trials? That's what he deals with immediately. What, what is the attitude that we are to have about our trials? With, with what theology, what theology will we face our trials with? Like I said, will we interpret God based on our trials or will we, we interpret our trials based on God, who we know Him to be? And you see it on your handout. One of the main reasons that James writes here is to correct Jewish misconceptions regarding adversity. They had some misconceptions regarding adversity. And James, right off the bat, teaches them how Christians should look at adversity. And again, his teaching here, you got got to look at it against the backdrop of some false assumptions that Jews had about adversity, including even Jesus' disciples. Even his disciples had some false theology, some misconceptions about suffering. And again, based on, on God's covenant, with Israel from Deuteronomy 28 and through 31, individual Jews, they were inclined to believe this. God will bless them materially in response to their living. If they do everything right, God will bless them materially. That was, the, that was their assumption. Suffering was nowhere on the radar. Nowhere in the picture. Conversely, they said, hey, if you don't do this, you'll suffer God's discipline. You'll suffer for it. They expected expected God to bless them for doing good. They expected God to smite those who didn't do good. And and you see this. Go to the book of Job. Job is suffering for righteous reasons, simply because of something going on behind the curtain he knows nothing about. What did his friends keep telling him? Repent. There's sin in your life. You're suffering because there's sin. That's their theology. I hope you see how theology plays out in everyday life. Their theology said... I live right, I get blessed. I sin, I get cursed. Job's being cursed, clearly there's sin. That's their theology. That, that's, their, their, that's their conception. You, you look at Psalm 73 with Asaph. The, he had very strong assumptions about prosperity and poverty, and he was frustrated. Asaph was frustrated and angry because the wicked appeared to be prospering. That angered Asaph. I bet in a group this size, I bet most, if not all of us, have, have wondered before, they don't even love God, why are they blessed and I'm suffering? I guarantee you we've all thought that. I guarantee you we've all asked ourselves, why me? But, but even Jesus' disciples brought this false assumption or misconception into trials. In John 9, the man's born blind. What did the disciples ask? Who sinned, Jesus, this man or did his parents sin? See what I'm saying? They equated blindness to sin. Clearly, if he was a righteous man, clearly if if there was not sin, he wouldn't be blind. And what does Jesus say? 
neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this man is born blind so that the works of God may be manifested in this very moment. Misconceptions about adversity. Misconceptions about trials. Even today, there's a dangerous and a devastating theology that's circulating that says this, God never wants me to be unhappy. He never wants you to be troubled. He never wants you to suffer. He never wants you to be sick or poor. And if you are, it's because you've sinned or you don't have enough faith. Devastating theology. Completely false. That I can just name it and claim it and move on. That's false. Nowhere in the Bible do you back that up misconceptions about adversity. And here's my point. I say all that to say this. Wrong theology leads to wrong faith. Wrong faith leads to wrong thinking. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Wrong theology leads to wrong faith. Wrong faith leads to wrong thinking. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. We see this time and time and again in our own lives, in other people's lives. Sound theology, biblical theology makes all the difference. We, we have to filter our lives through what this word says, not how we feel or what we think or what the world says. We, we are Christians, we are reborn people, but we are still in the sinful flesh. We will suffer. And all these worldly theologies and all this foolishness that we see on TV, Satan uses it to combat our minds and, and fight our minds so that the biblical truth that the Bible says is being bombarded and attacked by all this worldly nonsense. We, we live in a world, and, and I'm sure you're familiar, we live in a world today that is glorifying and making heroes out of people that ought to be ashamed of what they're doing. We make them out to be heroes. That's wrong. And it all boils back to a theology. The Jews were looking at, the, looking at their circumstances and it did not match their theology of God. Hey, this is who I know God to be. This isn't working out. This isn't making sense. I'm the people of God. Why am I suffering? I'm confused. That's the people that James is writing to and he's trying to help them understand that their trials did not mean that God had failed them. Trials do not mean that God has failed us. Trials do not mean that we've sinned. Trials do not mean that we've done something wrong necessarily. They might. You can go to, I think it's First uh, Peter 2. He says, if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing what is right. Don't suffer for doing what is wrong. Sometimes we do suffer for doing what's wrong. Sometimes we suffer for other people doing what is wrong. And sometimes we suffer just because God is doing something. And some of us, it says to those scattered, some of us come into this time of worship feeling scattered. Some, some of us feel, I guarantee you, I, I know your circumstances. Even as I, I preach this, I, I know your circumstances. You feel scattered. You feel scattered emotionally. Your circumstances are scattered. Your finances are scattered. Your health is scattered. Relationships are scattered. What do these mean? What do these mean regarding God and His love? We think we did things right. There's no clear sin to that. I mean, obviously we know we're sinners, but there's no clear sin to just be a consequence of. What's going on? Why me? Why am I suffering for other people's sin? That's the real hard one. And my point is, if we're honest, we struggle the same way that the Jews who James is writing 
is addressing that they struggle. We struggle to accept the fact that even as God's children, even though He loves us, even though He is for us, we will still face trials and we will still face trouble. Bottom line, we will still suffer. We'll suffer. We live in a fallen world. And, and that is why the Bible is so relevant. There's nothing new under the sun. The same things that, that these believers were facing is the same things we're facing. And James is showing us, what he's showing us here, and he's showing those believers is that how we face trials is actually a testimony to our faith in the greatness of our God. How we face trials is a testimony to, the, to our faith and the greatness of our God. How do we face trials? What, what is the trial built upon? Truth? Is it built upon the world? What is our God like? Is God worthy to be praised in good and bad times? Is our God at the mercy of our trials, or is He or our trials at His mercy? Is God sovereign or not? Is God subsequent to circumstances, or does He rule over circumstances? The, our attitude, the way that we as believers face trials, speaks volumes to that. Because believe it or not, we live out our theology. We live out our theology every single day in every single situation. We can say what we believe, but when we face trials, we see what we believe. We'll learn real quick what we believe. You look at my life, you'll see my theology. Look at your life, you'll see your theology. Real quick, we'll learn what we believe about God. And the world, hear me, the world notices that too. God's people, James is saying, we ought to be able to walk through trials in a way that the world takes notice, and there's a thirst and a hunger created in how we face trials. We're not immune. And what we see here in James at the beginning has everything to do with our faith. When, when we look at our behavior, it is a reflection of our faith. It's a reflection of what we believe, our decisions, our actions. The Jews had a wrong theology of suffering and it played out in their handling of suffering. But the issue, the issue is the content of their faith. The real issue is the core, the theology of their faith. And their actions are simply flowing from that. What, what they believed about God, what they were believing about God, about trials, about this world, it was incorrect, and it showed. And, and that's what James is getting at. The content of our faith. And because of that, James is saying, face your trials with an attitude of joy. Why? Because God is sovereign. Believe that God is sovereign. And, and again, as soon as I say that, there can be all kinds of rebuttals. Listen, remember the context. James is writing to a people who were hurting, scattered, dispersed, away from their homes, being mistreated, being taken advantage of. It was rough. And James says, consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance, when it has its completed work, it will be perfect and mature, not lacking anything. And what James is speaking to here, when we read, consider it all joy, he is speaking to their attitude towards the trial. He's not saying, go look for trials. He's not saying, seek them out. He's saying, have this attitude in the trial. This has nothing to do with feelings. The word there, nothing to do with feelings. He is literally saying, once and for all, if, if, we, could, 
If, if we were all Greek scholars and we could look at the Greek text, he, he would literally be saying in the Greek tense, once and for all, once and for all, have this attitude towards trials. Settle it. The, the word here, it means to deem. The word consider means to deem or to regard. It means to think upon a certain way. It, it literally is a mental evaluation. Mentally evaluating things in a certain way. It's, it's thinking rightly about something. Regardless of your feelings. It has nothing to do with feelings. It, it literally is a conscious acceptance. The, the word actually points to discipline. It is something that you discipline yourself to do. Think about in Paul in Philippians 4. Paul said, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. And then he goes on to name them. He learned it. He had disciplined himself to be content in whatever circumstances he found himself in. It was learned. That's the same thing that James is saying here. This is not a flimsy or a fake smile as if nothing was happening. This isn't just some flippant thing that you just throw around. Consider it all joy. You know, I, I got a call um, Thursday, I think it was Thursday evening from uh, Friday evening. Days start running together from Jack Hayes. Helga and Jack Hayes attend here. Her mother died. I didn't say, well, you know what, Helga? Consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing... No. I didn't say that to her. I wept with her. I comforted her. You, you don't just quote this passage when in trouble. This is a learned thing. This is not a turn that frown upside down kind of thing. This is a learned discipline. No, notice James doesn't, and, and, and to add insult to injury, he doesn't just say consider it joy. He says consider it all joy. That word there, joy, means it literally means joy to the highest degree. Some, some of your translations may say pure joy. What he's saying there, the word means this. It's not mixed with other emotions. It's joy. It's an attitude of joy. But that attitude of joy is rooted in who you know God to be. It's rooted in His love. It's rooted in His care for His people. It's rooted in the fact that He's sovereign. And, and again, th this is nothing new. Look, look with me at Matthew 5. Again, I said, that you're not, look, this isn't something new. Matthew 5, verses uh, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Je Jesus is very clear. You know what? Expect persecution. Totally contrary to this theology that's going around that says expect not to have it. Look at Luke 6, verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name for evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. That's why we can have an attitude of joy. And, and before we try to limit it, before we try to limit the scope and, and limit the context of what James is saying here, look what he says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter what kind of trials? Various trials. 
James casts a very, very wide net here. Don't try to limit it. Don't try to narrow it. To say, well, I only have to think that for these kind of trials, but not for these kind of trials. James says, no, consider it all joy when you face various trials. Again, this is, James's context is more, it's deeper than just religious persecution. It goes way beyond that. Don't, don't try to let yourself off the hook or others off the hook. These include small trials, big trials, minor trials. They involve major trials. Things that we bring on ourselves, things that others bring on us. It could be sickness, it could be interruptions, loneliness, bereavement, you name it. You name it. Because here's what, here's what James is saying, and you see it on your handout. Sometimes, sometimes we are scattered and suffer because of the gospel. Sometimes we are persecuted and suffer because we are believers. Okay, just clearly we understand that. You, you'll see, you, there's a handout in your horizon. Each week we look at a, another country. We're doing the top 50 most persecuted places to be a Christian. You see that handout. Sometimes you suffer because of the gospel. Sometimes, though, we are scattered and suffer for the gospel. For the gospel. But either way, meaning, meaning God is doing something behind the scenes that we know nothing about. And God, we'll see it later. God is taking the gospel, like in Philippians 1, we'll see it later, to places where it would not have otherwise gone. And again, James, James casts a wide net. Listen, he literally, the word scattered there literally means through seed. It's a picture of a farmer throwing out seed over a farm, over a field. Why? To produce a harvest. That's the picture. You and I, God has literally scattered us, scattered us all over the globe. Why? To, to, spread, this, to spread the gospel. That, that through us, He would produce a harvest. The, 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 the application, if we were going to bring it home, is this. You're not just a teacher or a physician or a construction worker or a contractor or a stay-at-home mom or retired Whatever you are, you are a Christian who happens to be a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, a physician, a doctor. God has you where He has you for the gospel. He has you where He has you to sow seeds for the gospel. You are there to show the world the greatness of our God. And how He does that sometimes is by allowing His children to go through trials so that they will show off that we serve a God who is worthy of our praise whether it's good times or bad times. He's that awesome. And, and James addresses, what he says is when you face, they're coming. Anything that you encounter or face, James is addressing here, consider it all joy. They're outside of us and coming at us. We're, we're among sin, we suffer the effects of sin. Everywhere we look, there are trials. He says, consider it joy. James is saying, be prepared, Christian. Be prepared. This, this is not something you should not expect. We never know when they'll happen, but guess what? They're coming. They're unexpected, they're inopportune, but they're coming. I, I thought about it just like a fighter. You know, a fighter, when he's in the ring, you know, he's braced himself because he knows this person is punching at him. This person's trying to knock his head off. He's prepared. Christian, we we, we're in a war. We, we live in a war. Be prepared. So, some of you individuals here have served in the military and know what it's like to be in a real war. 
you're always prepared. James is saying, be prepared. Expect it. Expect trouble. Expect trouble in your family, in your, with your friends, with your job, with your school, in economics. Expect it. 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expect it. And yet, this is where the joy comes in. This is what James is saying. This is where the joy comes in. We can have joy in trials because we know that no matter the trial, God's grace is sufficient for every trial. No matter the trial, God's grace is sufficient. No matter its shape, no matter its size, that's exactly what God told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Take this thorn from me. Take this thorn from me. Take this thorn from me. You know what God's response was? My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. Look, look with me at, at Isaiah 43. It, it, it'll come up on, your, on the screen there, I think. Isaiah chapter 43. Look, he says, But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, as He formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Listen to this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor with the, will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's why we can have joy. Because no matter, no matter the trial, it will not overtake us. It will not overwhelm us. It will not separate us from God's love to us through Christ Jesus. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 3. I mean, in Romans 8. Will famine or death or nakedness or sickness and all that. Paul had gone through all of that. He's literally saying, God, I'm trusting you that none of that stuff means I'm separated from you. You know what his answer was? In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's, that's the reason we can have joy. Look at, look at Hebrews 12, uh, 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it. Do you see the discipline? Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God's up to something. Trials are not joyful. We don't go looking for them. But trials can be sources of joy when we realize that God is accomplishing something and His purposes through them. God is doing something. He's doing something in them. You see that in, in John 16. He talks about comparing trials to birth pains. Or you, moms, women start having these contractions. You know what those contractions are telling you? There's a baby coming. Trials can be like those contractions saying God's up to something. He's doing something. If nothing else, if nothing else, they bring about intimacy with our Savior, learning that He can be trusted. Learning that He's worthy. Learning that telling the world that our Savior doesn't have to buy, our, buy His love or buy our love with, with success and material things. I mean, that, that's really the essence of Job. You look at Job 1, right around verses 7 and 8. The question is, Job, why do you worship God? Is it because He's got all this stuff? Is it because all the stuff He's given you and all the blessing? Or do you worship Him for Him? Satan accused God of buying Job's affection. The world looks at us, thinks the same thing. Same accusation could be made. And, and I would ask us, why do you worship? Do you worship in good times or bad or just the good? Do you love God for all the good stuff or are you willing to walk with God and love Him even in the bad stuff? And hear me, as soon as I say that, 
There are people in this sanctuary that have walked through stuff that I never, ever, ever want to face and have walked through it faithfully. Praise the Lord. Because He's good. He's good, and that's what the world needs to see about our Savior. Look at 1 Peter 2.20. Look, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. If not anything else, trials produce favor with God. That's good. They grow our faith. They grow our prayer life. They grow our intimacy with other believers. They grow this body. They grow a hunger for God's Word. All, I, you would testify, when you walk through a trial, sometimes those are the times that you grow the most. And the joy, listen, the word joy here, it's not that we laugh through it. It's a deep-rooted confidence in who God is, that He knows where you are, that He's sovereign over every single trial. It's confidence in God. That's where the joy comes from. It's a God confidence. And because of that, we can be confident that the ultimate results will be for good. Either His glory or our growth, or both. And what James is getting at is that, and we must believe this, God is so sovereign. He is sovereign over all of our trials. He's sovereign. 2 Corinthians 4, we looked at it around Easter, but 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, phenomenal passage. Listen, starting in verse 16, listen to this, an eternal perspective. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Listen to what Paul says. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here's here's why we can face trials with joy. Because God has promised us that nothing in your life, nothing that you walk through, nothing that you endure will be wasted. God's doing something. Nothing that you're... There, there, John Piper wrote a, a, a paper. Uh, I've shared it with some of you. It's called Don't Waste Your Cancer. It's a challenging read. He talks about in there that God doesn't waste anything. Doesn't waste any circumstances. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Comfort others with the comfort that you've been comforted with. It's not wasted. So real quick, just to kind of summarize as we close here. Summarize these truths. There's four or five truths there on on your handout that I just want to give summary on how we can face trials with joy. And the first one is this. James is telling us to expect adversity as the rule rather than exception. Expect it. He doesn't say consider it all joy if you face trials. He says when you fall into all sorts of trials. We're not to seek them, but trust me, they're coming. He says, prepare for them. Secondly, he says, James says that these trials will come in many different forms. Many different forms. Life is one trial after another. All shapes and sizes, no one is exempt. The word there literally means variety. It means diversity. All kinds of trials. Thirdly, he says that when we encounter these trials, we are to wholeheartedly rejoice in them knowing that God has sent them into our lives as part of His sanctifying process. Sanctifying process. Listen to me at Philippians 3.10, what Paul writes here about trials. And, and, and Paul suffered 
a, a great deal. But look at what he says. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed even to his death. Paul could rejoice in trials. Why? Because he was conforming him to the image of Jesus Christ. God's up to something. Fourth, God uses our trials to advance the gospel and show off his worth. Again, in Philippians, beautiful, beautiful statement here that, that is so deep. In, in Philippians 1.12, he says, Paul says, Now I want, you to, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Listen, that word, that word greater progress, it literally means furtherance. In, in that day, when a sovereign was going from point A to point B, he would send an army out in front of him. And that army would eliminate every obstacle in his way that would prevent him or slow him down from getting point A to point B. The, the army was literally called divine, they were called woodcutters, woodcutters. They would level the forest, they would build bridges, they would do whatever it took to make sure that that sovereign got from point A to point B. Notice what Paul says. Notice what he says his trials are. Paul literally says that his trials are divine woodcutters. God has leveled a way for him to get the gospel from point A to point B. The whole Praetorian Guard, the Roman army, is hearing the gospel day in and day out. Why? Because of his imprisonment. Because of the trial. Paul says, because of that, I'll be okay. I'll be okay with it. That, that's the picture. That's the joy, the attitude of joy that we can have in trials. Paul says, don't worry about my circumstances. God is sovereign. He's using them to further the gospel. He's using them to grow intimacy with, between me and my Savior. He's using them to take the gospel from point A to point B. Many of you in here have cancer. Take the gospel with you to those doctors. When you go to the hospital, take the gospel with you. When you meet people, other people with cancer, take the gospel, the good news of the gospel. That might be the very reason God is using, he is using you and using your cancer to further the gospel. It doesn't necessarily take it away, but it give, you can have joy in knowing that God is sovereign over it. Even in Philippians, in Philippians 2, 17, Paul says the same thing with, with regards to, to joy. He says, in trials, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Paul says, even if God chooses to pour me out and I die for you, if your faith has grown, it's worth it. It's worth it. He's sovereign. God is sovereign. And again, going back to James, we're not our own. We're servants. We're servants of the Messiah. He can do whatever He wants with us. And He can use us however He wants. But listen to me, trials do this. Oftentimes, the depth and the growth and the maturity and the steadfastness and the maturity, they come through trials. Will we be a people who discipline ourselves to have an attitude of joy, even in the midst of the heartache and the sorrow? Lastly is this, trials remind us that the best is yet to come. Romans 8.18, For I do not consider the present sufferings are worthy to be compared to the glory 
that is to be revealed in us. This, this world is not our home. The best is yet to come. Warren Wearsby said this, it's on your handout and I'll, I'll shut up after this. He said, our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, then trials will make us bitter, not better. It's about an attitude. It's about a perspective. And if you have children, you understand that. Our, you do stuff with and for your children, they have no idea what you're doing. They ask a million questions why. If they could only see things the way that you see them, they'd understand that you're good. God has a perspective that is so greater than ours. He sees everything that we don't see. Will we be a people that, 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 will God, that will allow God to just say, hey, come what may and I'll have an attitude of joy. Come what may and I'll display your worth to all the nations. Come what may and I will still worship you. I, I pray that we'll be that people. I, I pray that we'd be a people that could face anything and still be in love with our Savior. Because He's worthy. And I pray that we'd be a people that would be willing to be used for the gospel no matter what it costs. No matter what it costs. I pray that we would be a people that our faith would allow us to look beyond the trial to see what God is doing.